This is KMTT and today's Thursday this Zman Choref Taf Shin Ayin will be having a series by Rav Kalmin Newman on society and halacha. This is the seventh shiur in the series on halacha and politics and we are slowly but surely getting close to the questions of applying the principles of the halacha and politics to contemporary reality. We ended last time by mentioning the different approaches to understanding the scope of the powers of the king in halacha, the different opinions. I presented what I saw as three possible options. One is the fact that a king, a monarchy, is a construct of the Torah. As such, it is defined in a very specific way with certain specific powers and authorities, and we have to study the halacha in order to understand what exactly those authorities, but the powers of the king exist in and only in those specific areas that the Torah has mandated uh, the king's authority. That's one possibility. Possibility two, in the line of the language of the Torah, the idea that the Jewish monarchy was created as an imitation of some sort of the concept of monarchy that exists in the, in the world as a whole. And therefore, the parameters of the Jewish monarchy are not uniquely defined by the Torah, but rather are cognate in some way to the powers of kings all over the world. And possibility number three, which I mentioned in the name of Rav Israeli, was that the powers of a king are not a given, a halacha given, whether as a construct of the Torah itself or as an imitation of the non-Jewish kings, but the powers of a king are a function of those powers that are entrusted the king by the people. Right? That is, of course, the whole political notion of consent, the whole political notion that the people entrust through a social contract, entrust their powers to the king. Uh, and on the basis of that contract, the king has powers. I'll just say in parenthesis that we know that there's a whole debate in political thought. Can the people, through such an agreement, alienate basic rights or not? And, for instance, uh, anyone who's ever read the uh, American Declaration of Independence knows that the writers of the Declaration were influenced by political thinkers who felt that it is impossible uh, for people to alienate certain rights which are not, uh, uh, cannot be changed, and therefore, uh, therefore they have a right to rebel. So if we base the powers of the king on consent, we would have to ask questions about the scope of that consent, etc., etc. Maybe this will come up later. Today I want to deal especially with a text that is quoted extensively since the creation of the state and before the creation of the state by almost anyone who is dealing with the question of the status of the modern state in halacha. Actually, the since the people who deal with it are mostly people with a Zionist orientation, so therefore, it's, uh, uh, therefore this is really the text that they quote the most extensively. I'm talking about a text of Rav Kook, 
Usually people only quote one sentence out of it. I thought I would take the opportunity to discuss the entire text in context, and it's, I would say, almost one of the ironies of halachic literature that such a major and far-reaching statement is buried as almost as an aside in a very long halachic discussion. This discussion appears in uh, the book of Tzvot of Rav Kook, Mishpat Kohen. There is a very long, I would almost say rambling, discussion or conversation between Rav Kook and a rabbi named Zalman or Shlomo Zalman Pinas, who was living at the time in Zurich. The tshuva were written in uh, the winter of 1915-1916. Those who know Rav Kook, who was the rabbi of Yafo before 1914, found himself at the outbreak of the First World War in Europe. He had traveled to Europe to, uh, to attend, believe it or not, a convention of Agudat Yisrael. So, uh, in the course of the war, he found himself uh, in Switzerland and towards the end of the war in London, after which he returned to Israel and then became the rabbi of Jerusalem and ultimately the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Eretz Israel. Getting back to our issue, we're talking here about the winter of 1915, and he has a correspondence with Rav Zalman Pinas. I'm saying in parenthesis not to be uh, confused with the Zionist, religious Zionist leader, uh, Yechiel Michal Pinas, for instance, who Far Pinas is named after. Uh, but um, uh, Zalman Pinas was a rabbi in Zurich who wrote a book of Chidushim, among other things, and he was close to Rav Kook. Major thrust of Rav Kook's writings in these Shuvot is his Chidush that there is a principle of preserving Klal Yisrael or defending Klal Yisrael which is an overriding halachic category and takes precedence over anything else. And he sees this category as what he calls Migdar Milta, as kind of an emergency uh, ruling. Again, if Klai Yisrael is in danger, then it takes precedence over anything else in halacha. And this even includes the possibility of transgressing the Isurim of Shvichud Damim and Giloy Arayot, which we know do not override Pikuach Nefesh. However, again, when we're talking about a danger not only to many Jews, but to Klai Yisrael itself, then, Rav Kook says, then the need, this emergency situation overrides even these Isurim Chamurim, these severe prohibitions. The Chidush of Rav Kook itself is very interesting, especially since uh, Rav Pines asks him, he says, who says that an emergency situation is saving Klai Yisrael? Maybe emergencies in Halakha are only saving Klai Yisrael from Avera, to save people from engaging in sin, to protect the Torah, but not to protect the people of Israel themselves. So Rav Kook responds in what we would think is an agadic vein, but he sees this here as halachically significant. He quotes the famous Tan of the Belio, it's page Shin Kaf Zayin of the Tshuva. He quotes the famous Tana Beliau that Hashem says there are two things in the world who I love greatly. Kodem. 
I don't know which one precedes. Is it the love of Torah or the love of Am Yisrael? And then he says, Ani Omer Yisrael Kodmo, Shene'emar Kodesh, Yisrael Hashem, Reshit Vuato. Rav Kook uses this Agadic statement to say that if we know that the preservation of Torah, the need to protect the Torah from its detractors, is an emergency situation that we have the rule of we have the rules when there is an emergency and a danger to Torah, then we have to even go against the Torah in order to protect the Torah as a whole. So he says, if we hear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves Am Yisrael more than he loves Torah, then certainly the saving of Klal Yisrael also is a halachic justification to uh, go against even very serious laws of the Torah. Having said that, he engages on a long discussion. Again, this, these all appear in the collection of Tshuvot of Rav Kook called Mishpat Kohen. We're talking about Simanim, Kuf Mem Bet, Kuf Mem Gimel, Kuf Mem Dalit. And at one point he raises the question, why do we have to say that this is an emergency measure, a migdar milta, kind of extra halachic situation, that we have to go beyond the general definitions of halacha? Why can't we learn it from the case of Milchemet Mitzvah, just like we see that the laws of war transcend the prohibition of Shvichud Damim? So in the same way, we could say that the uh, danger to Klai Yisrael uh, fits into the same category. So Rav Kook says, and I'm quoting now from page Shin Tetvav of the book, No, we can't use the category of Milchemet Mitzvah as a uh, precedent for this law. Why? Even though generally it's true that the laws of war are an exception. However, the Milchama Vihilchot Tibur shiny. No, we're talking here about the special category of laws of war in Hilchot Tibur, of public law. Perhaps the whole question of war is part of Mishpatei Hamlucha, is part of the laws that are governed by a king, or the part of the political definition of a monarchy. There are many, probably many, uh, laws regarding monarchy, not all of them were defined clearly, not all of them we know. And he says, we only have Sridim, we only have vestiges from Mishpatei Hamlucha, but these are very different from the laws of the individual. And then he even says as an aside, and actually uh, the Darkei HaDrashah B'Zenim Saru L'Kol Melech Binato HaRechava Every king was was called upon to understand from the Torah what his authority is, to make his own drashot, and therefore he has his second Torah. His second Torah means that he has to infer from the Torah exactly what his uh, powers are, and therefore Rav Kook concludes, therefore, since the laws of the king are a unique halachic category, therefore we cannot draw conclusions about uh, that regarding the chidush about uh, saving Klal Yisrael, which is not necessarily done by a king. 
That's Rav Kook's claim. Then, in the next letter, he responds to a point raised. raised. Rabbi Pinus had seemed asked Rav Kook. He said, if indeed, as you say, the laws of war are all derived from Mishpat HaMelech, from the category of Mishpat HaMelech, from the special laws that govern monarchy. Therefore, we have a question. Here we have Torah that's appropriate for Hanukkah, so this fit, fit in very well. We ask, or he asks, of course, he says, if you say that the entire ability to uh, engage in war is only as a result of Mishpatei HaMelech, even if every Melech determines his own, exactly, the own parameters, the precise parameters. But in any case, that is the principle. So if that is the case, how could the Chasmonaim, who were not halachically instituted as kings, how could they fight uh, against the, uh, uh, the Syrian army without a king? The question is, how could the Chasmonaim fight against the Syrian army without a king? Before, again, they instituted a king. We spoke in one of the early shiurim about the halachic status of Malchut Beit Chasmonai, of after they appointed themselves as kings. But the original war was before they were defined as kings. So how could they engage in war? What was the halachic basis, the halachic heter, to engage in war without a king to determine the laws of war? So Rav Kook gives two answers to this question. The first answer is that there were really two stages to the wars of the Chasmonaim, which is an interesting historical statement worth uh, checking into. In any case, he says as follows. The first war, he says, was no problem halachically because the first uh, war against the enemy was a situation of Shat We know that there is a halachic obligation to be willing to die in Shat Ashmad. If there is a decree against mitzvot, then there is a obligation, right? Even on mitzvah kala, even on a relatively unimportant mitzvah, there is an obligation to be willing to put one's life down. Certainly, it is permitted or even perhaps obligatory to engage in war in order to oppose the power of the Shmad, the power of the evil decrees, and to establish the Torah properly. So that part of the war was halachically, clearly halachically mandated. There's no need for a king in order to, to engage in such type of violent activity. However, then the Rambam, then Rav Kook says, but the wars that would be carried out later by the kings of the Chasmonaim, then he says, then there were already kings. Then the later wars of the Chasmonaim, which were carried out in order to preserve the kingdom and not necessarily against evil decrees. So he says, those were based on kings that were accepted by the people. And here again, we go back to some of the issues we raised uh, in our first discussions. What exactly is the halachic status of a king who was not appointed by an avi, or uh, what about a beidin? What are the necessities? So uh, Rav Kook first says that when there is an avi, then you cannot a king cannot be established without an avi. But when there is no navi available, then the beidin agadol 
can appoint a king. And then uh, Rav Kook adds that when there's no king available in Beit David, and the dynasty of Beit David is no longer present or is no longer active, and we don't really know who the legitimate heir to the throne is, then Rav Kook says that in that case we can establish a king both without a prophet nor without a Beidin. And it says that was the status of Machut Beit Chasmonai. So even if the Ramban says that it was not proper, but nevertheless, they have the status of a king, even according to the Ramban. So that answer in a nutshell is that on one hand, at one stage of the rebellion, there was no need for a king. And indeed, afterward, there was a king. And that king had the halachic status of a king, even though it, perhaps the Chathila was not the ideal monarchy. Then Rav Kook adds, almost as an afterthought, another possibility. In addition, it seems, when there is no king, Kevan since the rules regarding kings are also that which has bearing on the general situation of the people as a whole, the rights of the laws return to the nation as a whole. And especially it seems that any leader that comes up in Israel that any judge, okay, any leader has the status, has, has the law, okay, I want to translate literally, has the law of a king regarding some of the mishpatei hamlucha, some of the laws of monarchy, especially regarding those things that have to do with leadership of the people. That's in order to exclude laws that have to do with the person of the king as an individual. example he gives is the Psak of the Rambam in Perek Dalet, Halacha Dalet, of Hilchot Melachim, that a king is allowed to take a pelegish. Okay, that's a question that there are different opinions in the Rishonim, both what exactly is the definition of pelegish and what exactly is the halachic implication of that. Uh, some of you might have heard of the famous Tshuva of Yaakov Emden. We'll leave that for now. In any case, uh, Rav Kook says, it stands to reason that such a person who is not officially a king, but rather has been a leader that has been accepted by the people, so he might have the political status of a king regarding his authority to command people and to take the people to war, etc. But it stands to reason, says Rav Kook, that he would not have the heter to have a pilegis, or I would add, he doesn't have a mitzvah to write a second Sefer Torah, he doesn't have the prohibition of having too many wives or whatever, not that we would necessarily recommend having more than 18 wives. But in any case, the halachot that deal with the king as a person would not apply to such a person. But regarding what he says, the leadership of the people in general, those powers would apply to such 
a leader. As he reiterates, Masa Nogela Hanagata Klal, Kos Manhigit Hauma, Dan Hubemispate Hamlucha. Anyone who leads the people, he follows Mishpate Hamlucha, the laws regarding a king. In order to support his opinion, he quotes the Rambam from Perak Dalad Hilchot Sanhedrin Al Chayud Gimel, Rose Goliotu Bebavil, Bimko Melachem Umdim, the heads of the exile in Bavel, they have the status of a king and they can lead and coerce the people to follow their words. So here we also uh, see, says Rambam, certainly uh, not only the leaders in Galut, but certainly when the Jewish people are in their own land and are uh, in a situation of independence, uh, Whatever level of independence, who were instituted to lead the people, they certainly have the powers of a king. And uh, certainly, when uh, he, as he sums up, when a leader is appointed in the style of a king, I would say, was given the powers of a king, according to the acceptance of the people of the nation, and Dad Beidin, he says, They certainly have the status of a king regarding the laws of Melucha, regarding those things that have to do with leadership of the people as a whole. I read this extensively, first of all, because, interestingly enough, this discussion really appears as an aside in a halachic give-and-take regarding the chidush of Rav Kook uh, with this statement of Migdar Milta, of an emergency situation to save Klal Yisrael. And uh, as a result of the question that he was asked about the Chasmanaim, so Rav Kook, in one possibility, says, well, maybe we don't really need to have the status of a king properly, but the status of a king who can engage in war uh, can be anyone else. Rav Kook did not raise this question as part of his general Zionist thought, or at least it doesn't come up. We don't have a treatise of Rav Kook about how a modern state should function and how the modern Mishpatei Amlucha should function. So again, interestingly enough, this quote, and it is a very seminal text in the entire history of Hilchot Medina, all the subsequent people who deal about uh, the status of a modern state, or the modern state of Israel, uh, quote Rav Kook, I'm talking about Rav Herzog, in his writings, Rav Yisraeli, of course, Rav Waldenberg, in his book, Hilchot Medina, and believe it or not, even Rav Avadi Yosef, who we know is not necessarily of the same ideological ilk as Rav Kook, uh, nevertheless, in a tshuva of his, in Yechavadad, about the requirement to pay income taxes, or the prohibition to cheat on your taxes, he says that if we are to say that the laws of Dina de Malchuta Dina apply in Eretz Yisrael, so the uh, principle of Dina de Malchuta does, doesn't require uh, necessarily a monarchy, but another type of regime 
could fulfill that requirement. We'll talk later about the whole law of Din al-Makhuta and its application to, to Dinat Yisrael. Uh, clearly, Ravavadi doesn't distinguish between Din al-Makhuta and Mishpat HaMelech. One of the possible bases or sources for Rav Kook's statement, uh, but he doesn't really bring any uh, much textual basis besides the example of Rosh Hashanah which is problematic in and of itself, and it seems to be based on a svara. Uh, Rav Tzviyuhuda Kook, Rav Kook's son, of course, in his notes on Mishpat Koin at the end, he quotes a Me'iri in Sanhedrin. It appears in uh, the Me'iri on Daphnon Bed in Sanhedrin, in which the Me'iri deals with the whole question of Dinen of of uh, executing people, Bismanaz, and Miri says as follows, Right, only a Sanhedrin can uh, execute someone. However, even if there's no Sanhedrin, the laws of the Malchut exist at all time. So he says that the power of a king exists at every time, and even every generation, there is permission for the leaders of the generation, the greatest people of the countries, to punish people in special circumstances, in emergency circumstances, so the Mary does use the language of Dinei HaMalchut. However, he's only talking about a specific example, the powers of the king to execute someone. And by the way, right, we saw already that it's not absolutely clear if the king can execute people uh, without a certain circumstance, such as a murderer who we are unable to execute according to the regular halacha, or a case of a red b'malchut. Mary seems to assume that when there's a public need then the king can command to execute anyone, and this power is transferred to the leaders of the people at any time. And we know, parenthetically, right, that there were cases even uh, during the Middle Ages when communities put people to death, when they felt that such a person was endangering the Jewish community as a whole. But that is, I would say, possible source for the Rav Kook. Actually, uh, Rav Kook was not aware of the Mary on the Sanhedrin. The Mary on the Sanhedrin had not yet been printed, in an article which he wrote a number of years ago, uh, Rav Neria Gutel found another place in the Me'iri as a Tana de Messiah, I would say, for Rav Kook in Me'iri in Sota, in the beginning of Ninth Perik. When he's talking about the laws of war, he says the laws of war apply both to wars that are uh, engaged by Malchei Yisrael or Manhigehem. Their leaders also have the halachic status like that of a king regarding the laws of war. And he also quoted the words of the Ramban at the end of his Hashmatod to Sefer HaMitzvot, where he says that mitzvah al hamelech o al hashofet umi shaha'am birshuto lehotziam latzava bemelchemet arashud. That a king or a shofet or anyone who leads the people can 
lead the people to Melchemet Arashut. Regarding the question of war, we'll deal with that later, exactly what the status of a king regarding war is and what exactly is the need for a king. For those of the possible textual either sources or similar opinions to that of Rav Kook, what might interest us more, perhaps, is the meta-halachic principle behind that. It would seem that Rav Kook is accepting here the notion of the power of the king based on consent. As he says, Chozrim had mishpatim. So the language of returning would seem to mean that these powers were originally of the people and they entrusted those powers to the king. Right? That is a classic formulation of consent. This does not mean, this does not mean to say that Rav Kook says that any other regime has the halachic status of minoy melech if indeed there is a mitzvah to appoint a king. The mitzvah to appoint a king has to be done in a certain way and the definition of a king might have a certain definition. However, Rav Kook says that if, for whatever reason, the people have not entrusted a king with those authorities, with those powers that are based on their consent, if they have not performed the mitzvah to accept upon themselves a king and to entrust him with them, with those powers, then whoever they do, whatever regime they establish, can acquire those self-same powers of a king by their agreement. This is far from being self-evident. And I saw an article of Rav Zalman Koren, which he quotes Revelvel, the brisker of the ancient tone al pidin Torah el alamelech olishivatu veyair ketakanat chazal. The function, the institution of a king, is nothing but a construct of the Torah. So only the way in which the Torah constructed political authority, only that is halachically significant. And therefore, if there is no king, there is no ability to engage in political rule. The only other possibility is shivatu ve'ayir, that is the local leadership of a town. Each system has its own parameters, its own definition. In any case, according to Revelville, there is no way to transfer the powers of a king to another type of political regime. As Rav Gutel points out in his article, uh, certainly, Shivatuvayir do not have the authority to wage war. So, the need for the Chidush of Rav Kook is especially when we're talking about the possibility of waging war. And that indeed we will talk about in coming Shiori.